and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm thrilled that you can join us today. We are going to be having an absolutely marvelous conversation with Mary Lou Falcone, who um, has written this wonderful book called I Didn't See It Coming. And uh, her husband had Lewy body dementia. But before I introduce you to her, I want to just invite you to join us for Arthur's Senior Care Memory Cafe, uh, which we do the second and the fourth Wednesday of each month from about one to three o'clock central time. And we do that virtually. If you're interested, just reach out to me at Lori, L-O-R-I at alzheimerspeaks.com. Also on the last Wednesday of every month from 10 to 1130, we meet at the Shoreview Community Center here in Minnesota. And that is a caregiver connector group where we also have respite for those living with dementia. And you can call directly to register at 763-913-6140. And then, of course, I would be amiss if I didn't direct you to alzheimerspeaks.com where you can access all of our free educational resources, as well as tapping into Dementia Map, which is our global resource directory. And don't forget to check out our book, Betty the Bald Chicken, Lessons in How to Care. Let's go ahead and introduce you to Mary Lou. Well, Mary Lou, I have been just anxiously awaiting this conversation because I just adore you. Uh, I was able to talk with her Um, a a few months ago, and we got this on the schedule, and you are going to love this conversation and get such great heartfelt insights that I think will really help. So Mary Lou, you can introduce yourself much better than I can to the audience. So if you don't mind giving them a little background about yourself. With pleasure. And Lori, thank you for inviting me on. I uh, am Mary Lou Falcone, and I began life as a caregiver. At age 10, my dad had a massive stroke that um, enabled him to to live. He did live, but he didn't speak again for the rest of his life. And so I became that caregiver for my dad, for my younger siblings, my brother and sister, as my mother held down three jobs to keep the family together. So caregiving was was not new to me uh, in later life when my husband, Nikki Zan, was um, diagnosed with Lewy body dementia. But in between those years, uh, probably we're talking almost 70 years, in between those years, caregiving was kind of a theme throughout my life. And that um, as a professional singer, I, I, of course, was out there performing for the public. But then I started a public relations business in, in uh 1973, exactly 50 years ago. And that was another form of caregiving for for artists. I've had the privilege of representing 
every classical music artist plus James Taylor that I've ever wanted to. And uh, and it's been it's been just a great, uh, a great run with that. But it is also a form of caregiving. So among among the careers were the, the caregiving, of course, the singing, the uh, teaching. I, I also taught along the way and the public relations business ending now with being an advocate for Lewy body dementia and awareness of that disease. Thank you. And Lewy body is one of those things that so many people don't really understand and, and until recently didn't even know about. And so I think that's one of the reasons this conversation is going to be so helpful to so many, especially as diagnoses change, which people don't anticipate that that's part of the game of dementia here, um, this kind of switching around, um, being able to be prepared. If you don't mind sharing a little bit about um, you and, and your husband, Nikki, and uh, sharing just a hair in the beginning here, kind of setting us up uh, for his dementia journey and yours alongside him. Yes. Nikki was a force of nature. It's the best way to describe him. In the 1950s, he was a for real rock and roller in the first wave of rock and roll. Now, everybody says, oh, sure. You know, uh, all the kids had basement bands and garage bands. Not Nikki. At age 14, he was on the road. And he was on the road with the likes of Johnny Cash, Patsy Cline, Jerry Lee Lewis, so he had a wonderful old time until he reached the age of 21. And he decided enough of this rock and roll. I'm going to go back to a passion that I've held all along the way. And that is being an artist. And so after making thousands and thousands of dollars as a teenager, as a rocker, he then basically made $45 his first year in art. And uh, but that didn't bother him at all because he knew that's where the passion was. And as fate would have it, Nikki became one of the premier artists of our day in the area of uh, illustration, caricature and cartooning. He then went on to be an oil painter. But his his major work uh, today hangs in the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. And uh, he is also said by the museum to have been the inspiration for Roy Lichtenstein. So that that's Nikki in a nutshell. But I will add one thing, and that is that when he passed, the letters that I got described him better than I ever could. And every single letter said the same thing. Nikki Zan made us feel special. Can't ask for more than that. Oh, got me teary eyed. <laughs> wow. What a man. What a man. Um that is that is powerful. Thank you for that that setup. Let's talk about your book. I didn't see it coming. Scenes of love, loss, and Louis body dementia. What made you decide to write the book? I mean, that's a that's a big step. It's a huge commitment, and it's you know putting your your whole life out there for everyone to see. Right. Well, I'm the person that for over fifty years said. I will never write a book. <laughs> well, lesson learned, never say never, because one doesn't know what will pop up. And about maybe three months before Nikki passed, he said to me, Mary Lou, you have to write. And I thought to myself, write what? And I just sort of tucked it away in the back of my mind. I didn't think much of it. 
And then Nikki passed. And that was in July of 2020. And all of a sudden, you know how those light bulb moments happen in your life? I had a light bulb moment. I knew not only that I had to write, I knew what I had to write. And I had to write about the disease, about the the progression, about the journey, and about us. I began by writing about the disease because I was getting two questions consistently. One was, Louis, what? And how do you spell that? Well, if you can't spell L-E-W-Y, you're never going to find Louis body dementia. And so I started the writing process and I front loaded the book with all things Louis body. And it, it was very thorough and very comprehensive. And then I went into a little bit about my life and, and how that journey then took me to Louis body. And a very brilliant editor, whom my publisher uh, suggested, said to me, you know, Mary Lou, if we don't care about you and Nikki, we are never going to care about what you want us to care about, which is Louis body dementia. And so I rewrote and I rewrote and I rewrote. But in the final rewrite, I was very happy with that advice because she was right. She was a million percent right. You need to bring people into your world. You need to share and share openly and honestly as best you can with them. And you can't hold back. The, you know, some of the stuff that I wrote was so sanitized that um, it was actually boring because it didn't tell the whole truth. It always told the truth. But if you're going to do this, you need to tell the whole truth. You just need to open yourself up, rip yourself apart and tell the whole truth. And that's what I eventually did. And I am actually today very happy that I did it because I see the results of how people are responding to this and relating it to their own lives. What I love about that is, you know, so often we're so scared to share the whole story, to be our authentic self, to be judged, or we're not supposed to have those emotions, but we all have them, you know, <laughs> we're all hiding them in the basement, you know, or whatever. And it, it, what we don't really appreciate is that it creates a safe space for others to feel and be authentic. And, and when you do that, you create this, this safety net that's just like this huge global hug that says you're okay and we'll get through this together. How well described that is because I've been on the road for the last couple of weeks to places like the University of Nebraska Medical Center and the Mayo Clinic. And, and I've been very privileged to speak to those, those people. And what I've been getting back is exactly affirmation of what you're saying, which is people will come up and say, because you dare to be vulnerable with us, we can open up and be vulnerable back. And what a gift that is, both yeah. ways, I might add. Oh, oh, definitely. I know when I started on this journey, um, you know, I joined the National Speakers Association and it was like you, they, they had a couple of rules back then. And it was like, pick a path. Who are you going to talk to? Are you going to talk with the medical professionals? Are you going to talk with the direct care? Are you going to talk with the, the families? The people with dementia weren't even included in it. And I'm like, I want to talk with everybody because if we aren't inclusive, we'll never make sustainable change. 
And then it was, and then the other rule was, oh, you can't get that emotional. You know, you need to take them on the highs and lows, but don't you dare get teary. Don't let your voice crack. And I'm like, I'm letting it all out. And I don't know when it's going to happen when I speak, but I'm going to be my authentic self. And like you, I hear people say all the time, oh my gosh, you had me in tears, but then you had me laughing because that's the whole package. You know, it's, it's not all doom and gloom and it's not all, you know, rose colored glasses either. Mm-hmm. No, and if you can't share the whole package, then you're doing a disservice because, you know, yes, there are highs. Yes, there are lows, but there's everything in between. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's important to, to let caregivers know that they're not the only ones going through this. It's so important to let them know that they're not alone. Yeah. And that's that's a message that I am screaming from the rafters with with real journey items. You know, yeah. you, you walk the path, you share the path. And I, I have found it's just a beautiful path. I mean, you meet the most interesting people. And like you said, it's a two-way sharing. I, I can't believe how much I've learned from other people. And I knew that would happen. But it, it has even surpassed what I thought I would learn. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. the stories out there and, you know, some of them just morph mine. And, you know, I encourage people, get your voice out there because bottom line is we are not going to get the services, products and tools we need if we if nobody knows what's really going on. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. And I'm finding, and this is revelatory, I'm finding the medical community the doctors actually coming up to say, thank you. We need to hear reality from the caregivers. That to me has been just astonishing mm-hmm. that they they seem to be not just listening. They seem to be embracing what's being said. What well, a gift. I, and I think part of it, it gives them hope because they don't know the other side. That's and so right. there's so much of this zip lipped going on in terms of even you know, if I give somebody a diagnosis, who do I refer them to, you know, and it's the everyday story that teaches people how to live graciously with the disease. I mean, we still need the academic and the, the um, medical models, because that teaches us something totally different than the in the trenches. But we we need to merge them if people are going to live well. Absolutely. And, and I, I hadn't experienced the openness of the medical profession three, four, five years ago, six years ago. I, I I hadn't gotten that except from a couple of exceptions, but generally speaking, not. And now it's just the opposite. The the doors are flinging open. They are they are greeting and and welcoming. And and I say yes for every caregiver out there, everyone needs this. Yeah. And so for people listening, you know, share your stories with your doctor. I mean, that's okay. I know time is limited when you're meeting with them. Um, Sometimes you can write things up, you know, certain things happen that just are so heartfelt and there's stories the doctors can use to comfort other people too, without disclosing who you are or any of that kind of jazz. That's right. But, But again, it removes that. I'm all by myself. Nobody understands. No one's here to help. And it builds, uh, I think, uh, a level of compassion in all of us. It, you know, and, and we have to layer that 
um, over time, especially in the world we're living in, we've kind of lost that. (laughs) Absolutely. But you said something um, just a couple of sentences back that I want to underscore because it was such a good comment. And that was about writing it down. Sometimes they don't have the time to sit and, and listen. But if you dare to write down your story, if you dare to write down those thoughts, along with all the medical things that are going on, but it, it can be so helpful. And I would highly recommend it because one doesn't remember from day to day all the detailing that is important to share with the doctors. And if, especially if you have multiple doctors, they all need the same information and actually logging it will act, will serve that purpose. And sharing it with other family members too, because they don't always see, especially if you're the primary care partner, they don't always see what you see. And and that can really help. Plus, did you find this whole process healing for you? I know for me, writing, if it was a blog, if it was journaling, if it was a book, it was it was all a healing process that I didn't really expect when I did it. Yeah, I um, I sat and wrote very often late at night because it was very quiet and, and peaceful. And and I would and I don't mind saying this. I would sit and write with tears streaming down my face. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the the desk was so wet, it was ridiculous. But after I did that, there was this feeling of just release and release of pressure and, and gratitude, gratitude that I was able to share it, number one. And secondly, that I was able to actually let it out which was so important after the fact, because during, yes, you go in another room and you can scream into a pillow and you can inhale lavender and you can do all kinds of technique things that work to get your equilibrium back and then walk in with that smiling face to your loved one so that there's a calm, because that's really important that, that the angst and the, and the, the, the energy that you're feeling that isn't so positive is not shared with your loved one. However, after the fact, you can let it all out. There's no reason to censor it. I can so relate to that writing late at night in the street. I mean, where I could barely see, you know, and sometimes I I had to stop writing because I just, I was crying so hard, but you know, I'm one that kind of bottles it up and I'll put on the Stepford wife smile <laughs> and I'll do the task at hand. And I didn't really even know that I was kind of doing this big cover up thing that I was projecting what I thought I had to be in other people's eyes so that they were comfortable. And I was ignoring how I was comfortable or my loved one was comfortable because I was, I, I think I had this fear of judgment of others that I didn't even know until I started writing stuff down. And then it was like, oh, it's okay. It's okay to be this, you know, and and that's interesting. And you can't move through it. If you don't acknowledge it, then you get stuck. Yeah. And, and so that release, that crying was um, that writing down, all of that was very, very powerful for me. Yeah. I didn't quite have the same experience, but mine was slightly different in that in going through it, I knew that it was important for for Nikki's dignity, for his well-being, for feeling good about himself. Because I do believe that anybody with dementia, whether it's Alzheimer's or Louis body, any of them, that somewhere deep inside, your loved one is still there. 
And very often what you experience is what I would fondly call in the Louis body world, you'd experience Louis mm -hmm. or in the Alzheimer's world, you'd experience Al. And, and you, you kind of lose sight sometimes that your loved one is very much there, maybe not in that very moment, but somewhere in the deep recesses, your person is, and they feel, and I do believe that they take in positive energy and loving energy just as quickly as they take in negative energy. And so I always felt that it was my responsibility to to bring in the positive energy at all times. Now, did I miss? Yeah, of course I did. I, everybody does. But but one has to learn to when you do miss, when you when you are edgy, when you when you've had it, you know, kind of like up to here and then beyond, you you need to then forgive yourself for losing it, for for not being the perfect person because nobody on the planet is. And in forgiving yourself, you can go back for the next round and and do a little better, try a little harder. And it'll happen again, guaranteed. But it's important for you to know that you're human and you need to take care of you also, not just your loved one. So yeah. it's that balancing act that's consistently there. And when you do have those moments of, I've had it. I'm going to scream. I can't take another minute. Take yourself out of the room. Scream into a pillow. I usually use the F word, which I do not use in real life. But I can tell you that that if you use heck, darn, damn, it's not going to do it. Mm -hmm. You just scream the word into a pillow. And then I would take a lavender sachet and I would inhale very deeply like a yoga breath to calm everything down. And that made an enormous difference. Then I could go back in genuinely smiling, genuinely um, at peace. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-494-8310. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-494-8310. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-494-8310. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Yeah, it is amazing when you release. I used to go downstairs, everyone would leave the house, I'd make sure all the windows were shut, and I would just scream at the top of my lungs. And I would have um, a conversation with God. And what I realized for me was I was, even though I was thinking that I was trying to resolve whatever was going on, that I was like swirling in the minutia of, of everything. And when I would go downstairs, and I would yell, and I'm like, Finally, I started yelling, what's my lesson? There's got to be a lesson in this. And then usually within 20 minutes to two days, 
the clarity was unbelievable because I was asking the right question. I was looking for the right yeah. thing because we don't always have the answers. And so you have to, for me anyways, I had to broaden the net and say, okay, I don't really know. <laughs> I just, yeah. I don't really know. Yeah. And then the other thing I would do was you had mentioned the yoga breath. I would take um, like 11 deep breaths and on my inhale, I would ask God or my higher power to give me whatever I need in that moment. And I wouldn't, I, I used to be specific, but again, I don't really always know what I need. And so I just left yeah. it open. And then on my exhale, I would ask for all the toxins in my mind, body and soul to leave the building. And so I kind of felt like it was a, a double fold. But you know, those deep breaths change our, our whole mechanisms in our body and, and can ground us. It's kind of like going back to, I think when my mom says, count to 10, you know, when I was little, count to 10 before yeah. you react, it was just that rebalancing act. But those little pieces um, add up and, and you're so correct when you said they can soak in the joy or they can soak in the negative. I mean, and they'll mirror it back. Absolutely. And, and sometimes we don't even know when we're being negative because we think we're being kind of that separate wives and we've got it all covered, but they're seeing the roll of our eyes or they're hearing that soft sigh of, oh my gosh, I don't know how much of this I can do. They're taking all that stuff in on us. Yeah. And, and just the vibration, you know, vibrations alone are very, very strong. I would, when Nikki couldn't get up from the table anymore, for instance, instead of just picking him up, mm -hmm. I would go over as if I needed a hug mm -hmm. and I would embrace him completely. And then as I was embracing him, lift him because it was, again, the dignity that was being preserved and the feeling of, of a loving touch rather than, okay, time to get up, you know, yep. it just, it doesn't quite work. Yeah. And, and being given the strength, you were just alluding to that, you know, and in, in asking for the strength to, to get through things. Last week, I was, I was at um, the Curtis Institute in Philadelphia with music students. And we're talking about the book, and we were talking about uh, my journey, etc. When I got done, one 20 year old young man raised his hand. And he said, I have a question. How did you do it? And I took a deep breath and I don't proselytize or any of that, but I did say, I had my faith. And with my faith came a belief that there's a lot more than me around. Mm -hmm. And you call it whatever you want to call it. I'm not going to label it. But because of faith and my belief in prayer, and Nikki also believed in that, I was able to get through every day asking for help from beyond me. And I will also add to that, we were helped by COVID. Odd to say, most people found COVID, you know, just a horror. Not us. We were into, uh, I guess it was the last five months of Nikki's life. It was when COVID hit. And it's just when I needed to be only with him 24-7. And I could be. What a gift. I mean, we have Thanksgiving coming up and and uh, the holiday season. And you think about all the things you're thankful for. I'm thankful. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Let's talk a little bit about Lewy body and how it's different from Alzheimer's disease and 
And were you told that, you know, upon diagnosis or did you have to figure that out yourself? I will say that our um, neurologist was a genius at diagnosis. He knew from a cognitive test and watching Nikki walk and said, this is Lewy body dementia with Parkinsonian aspects right out of the gate. From then on, I learned very quickly with all the questions that I had, the pages of questions that I prepared for various visits. What I learned was I was on my own. There was no help being given, no help being offered. Now, the reasons I'll never know, but that was the fact. So I had to find my own answers. And that was a process. I I would say I felt the same. And it was really through storytelling and just letting my mind be able to play with different scenarios of how how do we turn this around or how do we, you know, we came up with like the reaction equation of trying to figure out for my mom, she had Alzheimer's disease. Why why did she react that way? Instead of blaming it and saying it's wrong, it's like, no, it's a clue. It's a clue to me and I have to figure out why. And then that, that pulled me back to look, you know, kind of in what I imagine her world to be like and how she came to that conclusion. And there was always a rational reason when I stepped into that space. Her space. Yeah. Her space, not yours. Exactly. Exactly. But you asked a question about the difference between Alzheimer's and, and Lewy body. Mm -hmm. So they're both neurodegenerative diseases. And Lewy body is the second most progressive dementia after Alzheimer's disease, affecting 1.4 million people in this country alone. And that's a big number. And when you stop to think about, you know, some of the celebrities who have had it, uh, Robin Williams did and didn't know it, Estelle Getty, Casey Kasem, Dina Merrill, and the list can go on. The fact is that that it manifests itself very similarly. That is LBD, Lewy body dementia, um, manifests itself very similarly to Alzheimer's disease, meaning that there is decline, there is cognitive decline. But there are two major factors that distinguish it. Well, three, actually. Uh, One is that REM sleep disorder is part of Lewy body. That means that when you're dreaming, instead of just dreaming that you're you're rolling down a hill or or, or running down a hill, and if we dream, our, our limbs aren't actually moving. But with Lewy body, you'll find the legs moving or the person's dreaming that he's punching a punching bag. Well, you might, you, the person in bed with this person may become the punching bag because they, they punch out. So it is, it is acting out. That's one. Second, uh, very strong difference is the um, hallucination. Hallucinations, audio or, or visual, are part of Lewy body very often in the early stages. And the third and probably most telling difference is that Lewy body is like being on a roller coaster, meaning one day your loved one is 100% themselves. And this can be many years into the disease, not just the beginning. And the next day, that person doesn't even know who you are. So it fluctuates back and forth and back and forth. And and there were times even toward the end of Nikki's life when I would just, you know, we'd be having a conversation. Everything was clear and lucid. 
And then an hour later, I would say, Nikki, do you know who I am? And he'd say, no, but that's all right. And those are the basic differences but uh, among uh, those two diseases. Yeah, the, the sleep disorder, the, 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 um, the dreams, the vividness. And I, I mean, I know people that are afraid to go to sleep because they're afraid mm -hmm. they're going to hurt somebody or kill somebody, literally. And the fear of being attacked and having to fight and, you know, doctors give you medication to sleep, but their, their body is fighting going to sleep because they're just so scared. Anxious. And I can't, and I can't imagine yeah. being that terrified or couples sleeping in different beds because they don't want to get hurt. We, we didn't, I, I maintained our very comfortable, large bed, mm -hmm. um, and, and I felt the partnership, the, the importance of, of that loving touch in the middle of the night was incredibly important. Mm -hmm. um, there was a moment, though, when I was advised to make sure that all the knives were under lock and key. Mm -hmm. And even now, as I say that, I get a chill because the, the horror of that, when somebody tells you, lock up all your knives, it, it takes your breath away. Yep. Uh, happily that didn't happen to us it, it didn't get violent but it can well and when you we talked about the roller coaster I, I remember people on my dementia chats talk about they're like I can be great and then I'm just I'm like out of it for three days sometimes a week and then I pop right back up again and I'm ready to go and they're mm -hmm. like I, it, they couldn't explain it but they would just be exhausted and nothing was connecting and they were frustrated and that's just got to be horrible. And I've also heard people talk about um, body temperature changes. And I mean, there's so many different elements that can come into play. And I think of how many people have been diagnosed and then it's changed. So they're start out as Alzheimer's, then it's Lewy body. Then they tell them, no, it's mild cognitive impairment. And people are just like, they want an answer but this is not an easy thing to always diagnose, especially no. if you don't have a specialist that really understands. You can go to a neurologist that doesn't specialize in dementia, and that's going to make a difference in and of itself. Right. Why do you think so many people don't know about Lewy body and the stats as a whole? I think, first of all, um, it is a matter of the amount of attention that has been paid to it. Mm -hmm. I think that Alzheimer's, I mean, if, if 50 years ago, we weren't calling Alzheimer's Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. we were calling it hardening of the arteries or some such senility, you know, and mm -hmm. all of a sudden, somewhere along the line, the name Alzheimer's became known. It became known because a lot of people were, were dealing with it. And a lot of famous people were dealing with it. Mm -hmm. And when you get famous people in the mix, all of a sudden there is attention. When the attention happens, there is money. Then that gets spent on the research that needs to be done. And as the research gets done, there are leads to the cure for any of these diseases. So Alzheimer's was the first one out of the gate with all of this. Right now, if you've noticed, frontotemporal dementia, which Bruce Willis and his family have, have come out and talked about. All of a sudden, that's getting a lot of attention. Why? Because a celebrity name 
brave celebrity name is out there connected with it and his family. So uh, Louis Body is the next frontier as far as I'm concerned. It has probably been around for, for decades and decades, but not really recognized by name until about the 1990s. So it is relatively new on the dementia forefront. Mm-hmm. Not on the dementia front, because it's been there, but but being recognized. And now things like my book, I didn't see it coming, or um, other people who are out there just beating the drum for it. We are the ones who are going to bring more attention to it. My premise is that by bringing attention to it, you're going to have people caring more about it, at least knowing what it is. If they do, then it's easier to raise money for it. When the money comes in for research and and that machinery starts grinding and, and picking up steam, we're going to find retardants and then we're going to find cures. And that's the process. We're just in the middle of the process. It's kind of like cancer. Everything was cancer. And then it's like, oh, no, there's breast cancer. There's lung cancer. That's right. There's that. That's right. And we're finding more and more. And then we're finding, like with my mom, when she passed, you know, we did an autopsy. It showed she had Alzheimer's, Louis, and Parkinson's. And and Louis and Parkinson's were never diagnosed with her. And, and, you know, but who wants to offer up an autopsy when you still have life to live? You know, that's not going to work. So. You know, it's, it's how do you test it? How do you learn about it? And again, people need to share their stories with this. And it can change. A diagnosis can change from doctor to doctor, yeah. too, depending. And that can be really frustrating for families. Well, as you were describing your mom, you know, you, you said Alzheimer's. But then you said that there were these moments when she would come back. Mm-hmm. That's Louis body. Mm-hmm. That's not Alzheimer's. Because if it's straight Alzheimer's, it's a clear path downward that just you know it, it can plateau and all that but but it just it doesn't come back mm-hmm. if you have Louis body in there it can come back mm-hmm. so that comorbidity part is something that just now we're hearing more and more about exactly for those of you who are just tuning in right now we've been talking with Mary Lou Falcone she is internationally known as a classic music publicist and strategist, but she has lived the life of dementia with her husband through Louis Body, and she has written a beautiful, beautiful book called I Didn't See It Coming, Scenes of Love, Loss, and Louis Body Dementia. And so again, if you're just tuning in, you'll probably want to rewind and and catch the beginning of this because uh, it's just been a beautiful conversation with some great insights. You can always go to her website, MaryLouFalcone.com, where you can purchase her book. Um, or she also recommends going to the Louis Body Resource Center, uh, which is the, the Louis Body Resource Center.org for information as well. Um, we're going to continue on with this conversation because it's, I've just found it so interesting and I appreciate your honesty and, you know, just, it's so nice to talk to an authentic person who is willing to share it all and isn't embarrassed about it or ashamed. It's just part of the journey. And I think sharing our stories, it's kind of like the glue that holds us all together, uh, makes us not feel so alone. So when you um, 
you know, over your life, you've cared for many, many different um, people from your dad to your husband and things. What can make a difference when you're caring for a loved one? Um, what are some of your key tips? When you're caring for a loved one, I think it's important to remember that even when that loved one doesn't seem to be there, they are there. Some way, shape or form, they respond to that touch, to that kiss on the cheek, to that hug. Those are very important moments. I also think that that um, there are three things that that people really need to know. One is that they're loved. Mm -hmm. secondly that they're safe mm -hmm. and third that they're protected mm -hmm. those are important elements I also think that there is no blame there is no shame mm -hmm. things will happen along the way and you know your body gives out your your body functions um, are are not always what you would wish they were and, and I won't get into it graphically because we all know we're talking about incontinence. We're talking about all kinds of things. And those are moments when you just need to, to be on the cleanup crew, but also to allow the person that you're with to know that it's not their fault. You cannot blame them and they can't be ashamed of what's happening because it is not the, it's not what anybody would want. It's certainly not, no one asked for it. And lastly, it just happens. So the acceptance of that is incredibly important. So no blame and no shame. Yeah, it's not like they're doing it on purpose, you know? No. And I mean, it can be incontinence or it could be a, a spewing of incontinence, you know, when they're saying things that you've never heard them say before. You know, it's the disease and really remembering not to take it personally um, with that. And and how how would you want to be treated? Well, you know? exactly. And and it when someone comes out with an expletive or or something really crazy and or hurtful, it's the disease talking. Mm -hmm. It's not your loved one. And yeah. to remember that is so important and hard. No, I'm not going to sit here and tell you this is an easy journey. It's not. It simply is not. But there are so many beautiful moments within it, if you will allow them to be, and not just let the anger get the better of you. Also, other people, you know, we're surrounded by people who want to do well, who want to do what's right, who want to help. But what I had to learn was not everybody is capable of understanding and or of helping you. There are people who can't. Yeah. And I had to learn on my journey that those are people that I had to forgive because the, your first reaction is, well, can't you come and help me? I mean, can't you be there for me or for your loved, you know, your brother, your sister? And the answer is, honestly, there are those who cannot. Yeah. And you just have to, love them and wish them well and not take it personally. And that's hard. I'm not going to tell you it's easy. It's very hard to do that. But then there are people who surprise you, who who don't ask you, what do you need? They, they drop off a fully cooked meal or they send a, your favorite flower or they, they make a phone call that just says, I'm thinking about you today. 
Yeah. What what gifts? What beautiful gifts? Well, and I think too. I know, like my my brothers were two that couldn't. They just couldn't do what I what I wanted from them. What I expected of them because. I think we all think, well, everyone's like us, so they should just get this, you know, because on our minds, it's so clear of what needs to be done and how to do it. And I'll never forget the conversation. Um, This was after my dad had died. And I was sharing some stories saying, you know, I think I'm going to write a book, which I still haven't written this one yet. Um, And I was sharing stories about mom. And my older brother said, where'd you get the stories? And, and I just, I remember, I, I think I probably shook my head like I was there. And it was in that moment that I looked at both my brothers so differently. And I felt sorry for them because they don't have all the moments that I have because they chose not to be able to be part of the difficult times. They lost out on all the incredible times or just day to day you know, precious little things that we take for granted. They missed all that. Oh, and, yes. and that, and that moment allowed me to, to go, I can't change this. This is their journey. And I was, I was trying to like cram them into a, <laughs> into a little crack and come down my river. <laughs> you know? right. And it wasn't, and it wasn't working. And I realized when I finally let go that I had more time for me. I had more time to care the way I wanted to, and I wasn't carrying their burden. And I didn't even realize I was carrying that on my shoulders until I let it go. And, and that was, that was pretty powerful, you know, very powerful. And, and we would, we would wish for those we care about and love that they would invest in a way that actually they will they will gain from they will they'll be nourished by but if they don't want to go there or they can't go there i don't think that's that they don't want to i think that there are certain people who are wired in such a way that they're unable to and and that that's a reality and that's okay like i would say the the world would be pretty boring if everybody was a clone of me you know yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. or a clone of you i mean that just makes the world go round and and realizing everybody has their own choices and consequences and journeys in this life. And, and they're all a little bit different. Gosh, there's so many more things I want to ask of you. I want to see if you have any helpful hints for caregivers, just briefly that you want to share with our audience. I, I do. I think for caregivers, it is very important to carve out a little bit of time every day for yourself. That can mean sitting and doing nothing, having a cup of tea. It can mean finding someone to come and sit with your loved one while you go out and take a walk around the block. It can mean going and getting your nails done or your hair cut. Or if you need a weekend, I had an acquaintance who would get a beautiful and, and responsible caregiver in one weekend a month who would stay the entire weekend with her husband while she came into New York City, got a hotel room, and just ordered room service the entire weekend just to be alone and 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 burden-free for that 48 hours. Be able to sleep or do whatever you want. With didn't all- matter. You could mindlessly watch television. It didn't matter. You just knew that your loved one was being cared for and that you could, you could do that. Um, I think that those are those are important things. 
the caregiver, if you don't take care of yourself, what's going to happen if something happens to you? What's going to happen to your loved one? I think that when you think of it that way, you don't think of it as being selfish because being caring about your own well-being is never selfish. It's actually just the opposite. It's being protective so that you can do what needs to be done on a long-term basis. But nobody can shoulder 24-7, years in and years out, the responsibility of caregiving. You have to take breaks and you have to absolutely schedule them. It, it's a necessity. It's not, it's not a nice thing to do. It is a necessity. It is yeah. necessary. Yeah, that would be nice if that was worked in from the doctor. And it would be. Part of the conversation because it's not something that we feel like we have permission to do or we should do. Yeah, I know you feel very strongly about having the message that you're not alone. How do you feel people should connect so that they don't feel they're alone? Yeah, I think that uh, support groups. Now, I, I understand everybody is not comfortable in a support group. But if you've got the right support group, like-minded people who aren't afraid to, to share with one another, and also small support groups are, are very helpful because you can, you can really open up in those forums, whether they be in person or on Zoom calls, whatever. That's something that the Louis Body Dementia Resource Center does brilliantly, which is they have support groups for caregivers. And those are um, anywhere from like six people to 12 people on a support group. And it, it works incredibly well. They also have support groups for what they call the crew. The crew are those people with Lewy body dementia. I've also heard them call warriors, which I rather like too. Um, and, and those folks are people who are dealing day to day with the disease. It is, it is in them. And they are talking to one another. And that seems to be incredibly helpful rather than mixing everybody together. That does not work particularly well. So there are all these, these ways of reaching out and having people reach out to you. And sometimes, you know, in these support groups, there are questions that will come up which are, are so personal that people don't want to ask them. And so they'll say, is there somebody offline who will talk to me? And I always know that that's code for there's there's something that's bothering me deeply and I can't share it with the group. I, when I was on those support groups, I would be the person to volunteer to talk to them because I, I nine times out of 10, I would assume that the discussion would go into sexuality and it did. That's exactly where it went. It's something people don't talk about that um, your loved one it's probably, in my opinion, the last vestige that they have of controlling. And it is something that can't be taken away from them. And therefore, they will hang on to it and want it to be part of what they're, they're about. And those are times where it's difficult. You have to learn to, to navigate and deal. And perhaps if you're able to fulfill the need, and if you're not, find ways to, because it is it is something that I believe is deeply seated. And again, it's the only thing that the person can control at a certain point. Mm -hmm. Well, that, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because that is, it is important. Not everything can be 
for everyone discussed openly. And there are groups like memory cafes that have the people with dementia and their care partners together. There's like dementia mentors where a person um, newly diagnosed with any type of dementia can sign up to be mentored by somebody who is diagnosed, which is a whole different kind of ball of wax versus you know, one of us thinking that we know what it's like, but again, we haven't lived the path. We haven't actually been diagnosed. So um, Mary Lou, this has just been such a great conversation. Now, as for your book, what can people expect in your book? They can expect to laugh. They can expect to cry. They can expect to be taken on a very unexpected and kind of interesting journey of a life that basically concludes with the caregiving experience in great detail. So you can read it on a level of just an entertaining story, which it, I'm told it is, and I hope it is. Uh, but you can also read it as a bit of a handbook uh, toward the end of it so that, that you can uh, get a sense of what it feels like to be that caregiver, what, what it feels like to be the person who has the disease, and helpful hints of how you can treat any dementia. It's not just Lewy body dementia, it's dementia in general. And I think that that's, that seems to be the value of this as people are, are relating it back to me. Okay, and I think so often too, like our journeys with dementia, um, they are so much bigger, so much of what we learn or anyways, what I've learned um, I can apply in many areas of my life. It's really about looking and communicating different and um, um, being less judgmental, which again, I think is welcomed in all areas of life uh, for that. So, uh, and, and being a compassionate person, I, I just can't thank you enough for, for spending this hour with us. And wrapping up, again, we have been talking with Mary Lou Falcone on Louis body dementia and her wonderful book, which is called, I didn't see it coming. And uh, you can uh, get her book by going to her website. Um, I'm sure it's on Amazon as well. Is that correct? It is. Yes. There? And, you know, I always ask my audience to be a giver of hope, like click and share this episode again, not because I track the numbers, not because that's important to me. It's not, it's because there are people in your sphere of influence that need to hear Mary Lou's story. It will help lift them up um, and get them through a journey ahead of them. And maybe, maybe just encourage them to start sharing their story. And the more of us, you know, that can start sharing our stories, we, we build this tribe and this community to say it's safe to talk about this. This is a reality and it's the only way we're gonna get services, products and tools and support that we need. So um, please uh, please be a giver of hope. It takes no time, it costs you no money uh, just to, to click on a little icon and share it with others. And again, don't forget to check out the Louis Body Resource Center as well. That's a .org. Um, again, Mary Lou, thank you so much and keep up your profound work. You're really making a, a it is I who thank you. Difference. Thank you. So in wrapping up again, I hope you learned as much out of this episode as I did. And please uh, check out alzheimerspeaks.com. Go to our free 
Educational Resource Center. Check out our book, Betty the Bald Chicken, Lessons in How to Care. And of course, visit DementiaMap.com, our global resource directory. Have a wonderful week, everyone. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors. From fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond. I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me. Listen now. Search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform.